Hi there, this is Pastor Aaron of Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church, and we pray that through the preaching of God's Word that you were encouraged and pointed to Christ, our glorious Savior. If you have any questions or comments, uh, you can find us at www.fairviewcornerstone.com, and uh, please write to us. We'd love to uh, hear any questions or comments. We pray the Lord encourage you through this sermon. And so let's um, go ahead and turn once more to uh, the book of Genesis in chapter 3. And I know we kind of got to the end in a sense last week, but I want to go back and, and Lord willing, take one, one message looking at each part of the curse, the curse to the serpent, the curse to the woman, and the curse to the man. And so we are just going to uh, look at the curse to the serpent this morning. So can I ask you to stand with me? as we read from God's Word. Once again, that's uh, Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to start at verse 12 and just read uh, to verse 15. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And Lord God, just as, uh, as Dave Bosma prayed, Lord, we just ask that you would make our hearts moldable, Father. And Lord, I pray that this morning as we look at your word, God, that you would keep us from simply hearing my thoughts, my opinions, Father, but that you would be the one speaking, that you who spoke, let there be light, and there was light, would shine with the light of the gospel in our hearts afresh this morning, Lord, giving us understanding, helping us to perceive the world around us in a biblical way, the way that you have um, revealed it, Lord. And so we call upon you now by your Spirit to open our eyes, Lord, stir our affections for Christ, and Lord, that we would turn from from our evil ways, Lord, and, and return to you afresh this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So, because my wife uh, actually didn't ask permission to share this story, but it's not a, a bad story. <laughs> but I think I've used it before a little bit. Um, because my wife grew up in Mississippi, um, she's a lot more familiar with snakes than I am. Because in Mississippi, it was very common to come across a snake uh, and, and many of them poisonous. And I think I can probably count on one hand uh, the number of times I've come across a snake. And, uh, and, of course, any snake you come across in northern Alberta, as far as I know, is not venomous, so there's not really a lot of, of fear um, when you run across a snake. But for her, and for growing up in Mississippi, uh, as I said, it was a regular occurrence, and oftentimes you had to be very careful because these snakes were venomous, and she would tell me how her dad and, and her brother later um, were on duty for, for snake killing, and so if there was a snake in the garden or in the lawn, her dad would go and get the hoe and quickly kill the snake 
so that no one would get bit or hurt. And um, of course, now that she's moved to Canada, um, she has, I guess, inherited this gift of snake killing. And I didn't really realize this until after we were married and uh, we were in British Columbia and this little garter snake had come across the yard and as it didn't know, it had crossed the wrong yard because we were, we were there with our son Micah, who was about one, playing in the grass. He's crawling around. And we spot this snake. And before I knew what happened, uh, my wife told me to watch Micah. She was to the house and back with a hoe and killed this snake uh, on the ground. And, you know, suddenly my, my tender, uh, loving wife transformed into a snake-killing ninja. <laughs> and so, so she's uh, taken on the role of of snake killing. And, and you know, we, we think of those stories and, and you come to a passage like this in the Bible and you start to wonder, is this all that's going on? Is, is God just declaring that women generally are not going to like snakes and uh, they're going to try and kill them when they see them? Is, is, that, is, is that what God is talking about? And, and this passage, I think, is one of the most beautiful um, passages in the scripture because from here we really have the groundwork to understand the rest of scripture. What happens in these moments really sets the course for the rest of redemptive history and right up until the glorification of all things when Christ returns. So, so this morning um, I want us to look at this potentially confusing passage and try to understand three designs that God has in this curse to the serpent. Three designs that God is, is accomplishing as he curses this serpent for deceiving humanity. And so the first part is, is obvious, and even in the, the story of my wife killing the snake, we see that there's a physical reality here. The first design that God has in this curse is that he curses the, the creature, the physical creature, the snake, the serpent, is cursed to the ground. Um, there is not a lot of information given even in the rest of Scripture, but it seems to me that, that this creature that Satan used to approach Eve was in one way or another walking. And again, this is kind of speculation. We're not exactly sure. Um, we know in Revelation 12, the devil is referred to as that ancient serpent, the dragon and as you know, uh, dragons are portrayed with like a serpent body with feet. Was this that kind of creature? We're not sure, but it seems that it was because God curses this creature to the ground. And so that is the first design, and it's the most obvious one um, that's happening here. God turns to this creature that Satan used as a vehicle, as the means of communicating with Eve, and he places a curse upon the animal, and we're told right there in verse 14 that this animal is cursed above all livestock. So we know God's talking about animals. He's talking about physical creatures, livestock, beasts of the field. So there is a creature here that is being cursed by God. Now, we live in our, you know, protect the minority, um, combined with our save the whale sediment in our day. So questions might begin to rise like, well, how is it fair that this serpent, who was just a victim of this fallen angel, how is it fair that he be punished? Why does he have to be cursed to the ground and, and caused to slither uh, on, in the dust the rest of his life? You know, he was just strolling through the garden and suddenly was, we don't know how it worked. Satan possesses this creature and uses it as a vehicle 
to communicate with Eve. And so in our culture, we might have a bit of an objection. God, that's not fair. This poor little creature, he, he didn't do that. It was Satan using him. But let us not forget that God is the creator of all things. And so if he purposes to curse this creature to the ground, we need to be careful in our objections. And this is the same issue that Paul was really dealing with, even thinking about how God chooses to use various people in history. Paul uses the example of Pharaoh in Romans 9 and how God hardened his heart for the purpose of displaying his glory over Pharaoh. And Paul says, if you have an objection to that, if you want to question God's justice, remember, he is the potter and we are the clay. So all that to say, I I imagine there are some objections that start to rise when you think of this creature um, being cursed. But again, let us be mindful, God is the designer and the creator. So the question does remain, why then would God curse this creature if he wasn't, the creature um, again, was the vehicle of Satan, we find, as Scripture unfolds. But the serpent, I think the, the, one of the primary reasons that God curses it is because this serpent becomes a symbol of Satan's rebellion and God's judgment for us. It is a symbol, a perpetual symbol, when we see a serpent and you're familiar with the narrative, you're reminded Satan rebelled And this creature's state is the effect of that rebellion. This is the consequence of Satan's rebellion and Adam and Eve's rebellion. So I think God establishes this creature as an everlasting symbol. And and I'll explain everlasting in a moment, but um, it is a symbol of God's judgment and of Satan's rebellion. Now, I don't think we need to take this too far either, um, you know, in, as far as saying that every snake now is possessed by Satan or his demons. That's, I don't think that's what we need to draw from this, but rather the, the, this is a creature made by God. It was good in the beginning, a good creature, and, uh, and so we can even enjoy studying perhaps about snakes, but there is this, this stigma attached to it, this symbol of judgment that God has placed upon the serpent. And as Christians, it's a reminder. And I think that's something to give thanks for. I'm thankful for many of these physical symbols that God gives us, rainbows and bread and wine to remember. And and he gives us signs of covenant, baptism. He gives us these physical reminders and symbols of his story of redemption. And so we have this, uh, this creature that's cursed, and we're told that it will go on into its belly, all of its days, and we're told that it will eat dust, that dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And the biologist might say, well, don't you know serpents, uh, they actually eat mice, rodents, insects. What does this mean by the serpent will eat dust? And this isn't so much talking about the serpent's diet as it is his condition. He's forever cast into a place of humility, of, of judgment, of lowliness. The scriptures often use this kind of imagery when talking about defeated kings or nations. Psalm 72 verse 9 says, may he, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. It is a condition of defeat and of judgment. 
Isaiah 49.23 says, With their faces to the ground, they shall bow, bow down to you and lick the dust at your feet. Again, this is an imagery of judgment, of defeat that the serpent is portraying. One more, Micah 7.15, As in the days when you came out of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, crawling like the crawling things of the earth. And so this symbol of, of eating the dust is a place of defeat, of destruction, of judgment that God has placed. And if you want to flip to Isaiah just for a moment, um, there's a really fascinating passage that it, it seems that it's talking of the new heavens and the new earth when there is restoration in God's creation. And Isaiah 65, verse 25, you have this passage, which I'm sure many of you are, are familiar with, and it's describing this time of restoration, this time of, of newness in God's creation, when Christ the victor has, has, has glorified all things. We, we're told these, these images in verse 25 that the wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. And so you have this, this imagery of a new heavens, a new earth we see in, in verse 17 that God is going to establish. We will be a part of that new heavens and new earth. But even still, we see the serpent eating the dust this perpetual reminder and symbol of God's judgment upon, ultimately, the devil. And so that's the first design, is simply the curse upon the creature, the snake, and that being a symbol, a reminder for us. The second design of God, which is a bit more subtle and we get from the, the, the fullness of Scripture, we start to see more. The second design of God, and, and this is where we start to realize, no, this isn't just about women killing snakes with, with garden hose. There's more going on here that God is, is unfolding. And the second design is that this curse is a picture of Satan's judgment. This is a picture of the exact same thing that happened to Satan, to Lucifer, that fallen angel, when he set himself against God. And you don't have to turn with me if, if you don't want. We looked at these a few weeks ago, but we have a few places in the Scripture where we're given a bit of insight into what happened with Lucifer, what happened in this rebellion in, in the heavenly places. Very early on, before he comes into the garden, we can assume there was this revolt in heaven. In Isaiah 14, we find that as there's this prophecy against the judgment of earthly kings, there's also this hint that there is a like um, judgment happened in heaven. And, and we see chapter 14 of Isaiah, verse 12, says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, O son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly. In the far reaches of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. And you have this moment in, in 
sometime in the beginning when Satan desires the position of God and we're told his judgment was, even verse 15, you are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. And so as God curses this serpent to the ground, there is also the picture of Satan's judgment that has happened. And you can look more at Ezekiel 28 was one of the other ones we've gone to in the past to see that this is more uh, than just a physical serpent being forced to the ground. There is an angel, a mighty angel, a beautiful angel who is created to serve the courts of heaven, maybe a, a worship leader of the angels, but in his heart was found pride and he desired to be God. And so he declares war upon God and so God punishes him. And we looked also um, previously, but it, there's such a, an amazing parallel in Revelation 12 because you see the exact same image, imagery that John writes in Revelation 12 about this ancient serpent, the devil, who has been cast out of heaven. You can flip there. And, and just so you see, because in Genesis, we're not told specifically about this angel, but as we get the progressive revelation of God through Scripture, we see this unfolding. In Revelation 12, we're told there was a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head, crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she'll be nourished for 1260 days. And then you have this in, in Revelation 12, 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. And listen to what John says about this dragon. This isn't just speculating here about this being Satan. He specifically says that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And so we see this design in God's curse is also a reminder that there is a spiritual realm that we cannot see. And there was a rebellion that happened before the rebellion of man. And God judged those involved. Satan as the leader, his fallen angels, it would seem even from Revelation 12 that one-third of the stars were swept down and many would believe that with Lucifer fell one-third of the angels and are referred to in the scriptures as demons. Which means for every angel, there are two heavenly angels. For every demon, there are two heavenly angels, right? So not that we have to fear as though this rebellion is actually going to gain any ground. And for God himself, when you look at battles in Revelation, you know, we think of battles, we think of what? 
Lord of the Rings, right? Or something like that, where it's darkness and evil, and there's back and forth, back and forth, and it seems that the light is almost going to be quenched, but then barely, finally, the, the light wins. That's not the, that's not the picture of the Bible's battle scenes. It's a rebellion rises up, and God crushes it. And there's no big drama, you know. Satan is a defeated foe. He is a creature. And we need to be careful that we don't think of this story of redemption that we're in. It's not a big chess match in the sky where it's God versus the devil, and God's not quite sure how this is going to go. He's not quite sure what the serpent's going to do. That's not the picture. But rather, God as already knowing every move the serpent is going to make and having already set in motion his plan to defeat the serpent. And so this serpent, as and again, we don't have the specific backstory in Genesis, but as you can imagine, Satan setting himself against God, desiring to be God, to be the recipient of worship, he is coming then to the garden to do what? not only cause these image bearers to rebel against their God, but I think also to bring worship to himself and maybe form an alliance against God with these humans. And as Adam and Eve listened to his voice, Adam, who was given dominion, who was made king of the earth in that sense by God, hands it over to the serpent. And this is why the writers of the New Testament Paul, in 2 Corinthians 4.4, calls Satan the God of this world. Jesus, in John 12.21, calls him the ruler of this world, which is who Jesus came to cast out. And so, Satan comes, and he tries to lead this rebellion. He tries to bring humanity into his rebellion, into him receiving worship from them. But we see then the third design of God in this curse. Not only the creature that is cursed to the ground, not only the picture of Satan's judgment, but the third design is the curse of enmity. God declares war on the serpent through the woman. And if you begin to understand that, that here in Genesis, at the very beginning, right after man fell, God declares war on the serpent through the woman. Very important. If you understand that and you begin to read through the story of redemption, you start to see this thread of this battle and this serpent seeking to devour. And so you see as God, we're told in verse 15, I will put enmity between you, and he's talking, remember, to the serpent here. This is the serpent's curse. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, but he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Sometimes we think, I know I can be guilty of thinking that Satan's enmity, his hatred of humanity, is simply something that he himself has brought about, but we see that God is actually the one who puts the enmity between the woman, between humanity, between ultimately Christ and this serpent. Because you could imagine as Satan causes this man and woman to fall into sin, he's thinking, I've gained an ally. 
Now maybe I can turn again on the hosts of heaven. But God sovereignly comes in and says, No, no, you haven't gained an ally, Satan. You have not gained a victory here. What you have done is pronounced your death through this woman. And God pronounces a war over the serpent through this woman. And as you understand again, as humanity and specifically those who are following Jesus, that we are caught in the midst of a battle, of a war. And the serpent is still in a rage against the offspring of the woman, of Christ and his followers. But our, our instruments of warfare are not physical. They're not guns and tanks and cannons. Rather, it is prayer. It is dying to ourselves. It is the word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit, we're told, that we stand and we now join in this battle. As Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, this is not a battle of flesh and blood. This isn't us versus a liberal government or us versus ISIS or us versus whatever it might be. That is not the ultimate battle. There is this enmity, this war between the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And Paul says that it is our, our wars against rulers and against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, in Ephesians 6.12. And so we must be mindful of that. This isn't us versus any physical entity. And we must be a people of prayer. As hard as, I think this is why prayer is so hard, because it is most vital in the battle as Christians. And then we will, and there's so much we could go into here, but um, try to bring it to a close for you. When you look at, at, at God's language, so you start to ask these questions like, he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, so the serpent and, and Eve who's standing there. But then, it talks about the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of this woman. And you have then this pronouncement, and, and, and notice at the end of the middle of verse 15, there is the singular he in talking about the offspring of the woman. It's not plural they, it's he will bruise your head. Who is God talking about? Who's he talking about? Who is the he that would come from the woman who would crush the serpent? It is Christ himself, born of who? Not of man, of woman, the virgin conceived. Christ is not the descendant of Adam. He comes from the woman who is supernaturally um, conceived of God. And so you have here what some call uh, the, there's a, a Latin phrase that they used to use, the proto-evangelium, and even in that word you hear the proto, the first, and evangelium, the gospel, the first good news, the first telling of the gospel is right here in Genesis in the midst of a curse. God preaches the gospel to Adam and Eve, and they are told, yes, there is a war now, yes, you will suffer, yes, you are cursed, but there is coming one, who is going to crush the head of this ruler that you have set up for yourselves. And he's going to come from woman. 
He's going to be the offspring of the woman, and he will declare war, and he will crush the serpent's head. And the serpent is going to strike his heel and bruise him. And as Christ dies upon the cross, you see the culmination of this battle, the serpent striking the Son of God, the offspring of the woman. But through the cross, through taking our debt upon himself, Christ strikes the serpent on the head and robs him of his power, removes his venomous fangs, so that all the devil can do now is gum you. He has no fangs, right? It's, it's, we have babies. It's one thing you put your finger in a baby's mouth with gums and it's kind of cute and you laugh. Once that thing gets teeth, and my boys have figured this out with their little brother, you don't put your fingers in his mouth anymore. That boy can bite, right? But the, the, the serpent is now without fangs. Christ has removed them. And we don't have time, but... Um, it is interesting, even if you want to jot down John chapter 8, verse 43, in thinking about what does he mean by the offspring of the serpent? Um, in John 8, 43, Christ addressing the Pharisees says, you are not sons of Abraham. You are not sons of God. You are sons of your father, the devil, who's been a liar from the beginning. And you see this, this, this reality of offspring unfolding. And... Um, and even in, and again, we're just out of time, I know, but um, Revelation 12 and 13. In Revelation 12, we read that portion where the, the serpent in heaven has declared war and Michael has cast him out and the, the serpent, well, I'll just turn it real quick, I won't read it all, but um, you need to understand this because the question does come up. So if, if Christ has defeated the serpent, if he's without fangs, if he is crushed, then, then where do we find ourselves in, in this, this battle? What, what stage are we in if Christ has, in fact, defeated the serpent? And, and we see that the dragon in Revelation 12, um, we're told in verse 11, those that conquer this dragon, they conquer by the, the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. And then it says, Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. The pronouncement has been made, the, the serpent has been judged, the victory is, is already sure, but he's in a rage because he knows that his time is short. And we see that in verse 13, the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth. He pursues the woman who gives birth to the child. So the woman, even, even thinking of the people of God, the nation of Israel, who brings forth Christ. And, but the woman is, is protected by God, we're told, that given the wings of the eagle, nourished for a time. Then the serpent, to devour the woman, tries to pour out this water which is, which is swallowed by the earth. Then the dragon, when he fails in verse 17, became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Now listen to how he describes the offspring of the woman. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. If you are looking to Christ, seeking to walk in the commandments of God, even for your children, right? 
You are given a command to obey your mother and father, and this is pleasing in the Lord. And as you seek to do that, to walk in, in obedience to God, you find yourselves in a war. And then the serpent raises up two beasts, and the beast from the sea, which is hideous and blasphemous, and slaughters the people of God, and the second beast in verse 11, which is a friendly-looking beast. He, he looks like a lamb. He's quite approachable. But as he speaks, he has the authority of the first. And he performs great signs and miracles, which I understand to mean that as Satan declares war on the church of Jesus Christ, he employs Hitler's and Joseph Smith. He will employ those who will slaughter and butcher the people of God, and he will employ those who will deceive and give false doctrine to lead the people of God astray. And we are called to be vigilant. And this is a little insert, and, and, um, and then we'll be done, I promise. Um, William Hendrickson wrote a little commentary on Revelation 12, connecting it to Genesis 3. And, and, and I just think it's so amazing, and it's going to feel a little bit like a history lesson just for the last few minutes here, but I think you'll begin to see why this helps as you read through this book and you try to understand what is the point of this story. He points out that in Revelation 3.15, the seed indicates Christ, and, and the conflict is announced in Genesis 3 between the serpent and this one who would come from the woman. And as you move into Genesis, from Seth to the flood, you see that children are born to Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, but Cain slays Abel. But then Seth is born. Does Satan realize that the family of Seth has been predestined to bring forth the promised seed, the Messiah, the this, this son Seth? One thinks so, for the devil begins to do all in his power to destroy Seth. He whispers into the ears of Seth's sons to marry the daughters of Cain and corrupt this line that would bring the Christ. It would seem that Satan has triumphed, but no, not entirely. Among the families that descend from Seth, there is one who fears the Lord, the man Noah stands as a righteous man in his generation, and God saves this one family from the devouring jaws of the serpent, and the promise continues. And from the flood to Jacob, again the dragon stands in front of the woman in order to destroy the child. The promise concerning the Messiah is now given to Abraham and his wife Sarah, but the promise cannot be fulfilled for Abraham is old and Sarah is barren. The dragon, it would seem, is about triumphed over the promised seed that would come. But by and by, by God's grace, Sarah conceives miraculously and gives birth to Isaac. But then God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, to kill him. Is the dragon going to win? Will this line be defeated? It seems that it might. But at the last moment, the angel of the Lord, that is Christ himself, appears in order to safeguard his own birth and says, Abraham, no, do not take the life of your son. And the promise continues. The line continues. Israel is formed as, as we have Abraham and Isaac. And from Jacob to the Jews in the desert, again, the dragon stands in front of the woman. He attacks Jacob's descendants, the Jews. This time, it surely seems as if he will be successful. But the Lord delivers his people from Egypt. And even though they reject him, in the desert, it seems maybe the serpent, as Israel is standing around the golden calf, has the serpent won? Has he defeated 
the line, the promise. And God prepares to strike the nation of Israel and destroy them. He tells Moses, let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them and that I may consume them. And it would seem the dragon might triumph. The line would be ended unless there's an intercessor. But there is. Moses stands and intercedes for the people of Israel and prays on their behalf and God has mercy upon them. And the line continues. And from the Jews to the desert, and from the Jews to the desert to David, the king. And out of the tribe of Judah, God chooses one family, that of David. The promised Messiah will be born to his seed. But we see that the devil now aims his arrow at David, and Saul takes the spear in his hand, seeking to kill David. But David escapes and is delivered by God, and again the line continues. And from David to Queen Athila, who is the wicked daughter of the wicked parents Ahab and Jezebel, who set, set themselves to destroy the people of God. And again, it would seem that the serpent is going to be victorious. He is going to defeat the woman and, his, and her promised seed. But the plan is frustrated, and, and they are destroyed, and God raises up Joash, who comes in and, and destroys the wickedness and restores the people of God, and they cry, Long live the king, Joash. And we see even going, skipping over King Ahaz to Esther. The plot by Haman with the king to destroy the Jews, and it seems maybe this line will be destroyed. Maybe the serpent will be victorious. But Esther steps forth on behalf of her nation, and she comes to the king asking for mercy and exposing the plan of Haman and, and through her uncle Mordecai. And again, the seed is preserved. And then finally we come from Esther to Bethlehem. Now occurs the final act in this mighty drama. The scene is Bethlehem. There in a manger lays the Christ child. But although he is now actually born, the dragon still tries to destroy him. We see that again, this dragon stands in front of the woman who's about to be delivered. And when she is delivered, he may devour the child. And, and you have, of course, you know the Christmas story. The wise men come. And they are told by Herod, tell me when you find him, because I want to worship him. And Herod desires to kill this king. The serpent prepares to strike. But again, God delivers the Christ child. And so, as you begin to understand what was started in Genesis 3 and what we are caught up in, I pray the word of God becomes alive in a fresh way. I used to hate history. But as I began to understand these things, history came alive. Tell your children about it. And as my kid's little book um, states, history is his story. And so I know I went a bit longer there. I just I wanted you to see as we think about this curse to the serpent and, and this war that was started, God, the beauty of God's plan. Let us um, stand together and we will close with prayer. Thank you for your patience. And I pray that you see the beauty of our Christ who has come. And if you are not in Jesus this morning, do not think there is a neutral place to hide. Either you will be caught in serving the serpent or you will stand with Christ. Either you will be joined in the judgment of the serpent or you'll be joined in the inheritance of Christ. And may we be found in him.
Let's pray, and then we'll ask the ushers to come forward. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that, God, we stand now in the last days. We look back on all of this history, thousands and thousands and thousands of years of history, of lives, just like ours, lived out before you, God, and your hand of grace and mercy at work through it all. And so we praise you, Father, and Lord, may we rejoice in knowing your promise is sure. Your victory is won through Christ. And Lord, may we live that out in our lives. And Father, as we give of our tithes, as we serve here in the midst of this battle, Lord, may we hold fast to our confession of faith. And may we live in the victory that Christ has bought. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you for tuning in today to this sermon uh, preached at Fairview Cornerstone Baptist Church. And again, if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at church at fairviewcornerstone.com. God bless.